Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 119, when Adam delved and Eve span. So, I want you to picture the scene. We're at the little hill of Blackheath, on the south bank of the Thames, just five miles from the Tower of London. Camped around the hill is a chaos of temporary shelters as far as you can see. The stench of open sewers and latrines fills your nostrils. The light and smoke of a thousand campfires surrounds you. All the sights and sounds that come from tens of thousands of ragged people on the march. Somewhere else on the hill is the sound of cheering. And if you follow the sound, you'll come to a massive group, all sitting round listening to a wild-looking hedge priest haranguing them on his favourite text. And when Adam delved and Eve span... Who was then the gentleman? From the beginning all men were created equal by nature and that servitude had been introduced by the unjust and evil oppression of men against the will of God who, if it had pleased him to create serfs, surely in the beginning of the world would have appointed who be serf and who be lord. We can imagine the crowd shouting out and cheering agreement at words that connected them with all the injustice and frustration and resentment they lived with every day, that their fathers had lived with, and generations back to the dimly forgotten time of the good king Edward the Confessor, whose true and good laws had once defined a land of people who were free. The wild-looking hedge priest was a man called John Ball and he believed all this to the core of his being, and had made this text the work of his life. He'd already been thrown off his living, he'd already been hauled in front of the Archbishop of Canterbury and thrown into jail, but now here at last, 
was his life's work come to harvest. At last his chance had come to sweep away the parasitic structure of abbots, bishops and archbishops and create a new free society of equals. And so he kept tapping into the fiery hot furnace of pain, resentment and oppression that lay at the heart of his listeners. And with his words, he blew the furnace into white hot flame. What have we deserved? Or why should we be thus kept in servage? They are clothed in velvet and camelot furred with grease, and we be vestured with poor cloth. They have their wines, spices, good bread. And we have the drawing out of the chaff and drink water. They dwell in fair houses, and we have the pain and travail, rain and wind in the fields. And by that that cometh of our labours they keep and maintain their estates. We be called their bondsmen, and without we do readily them services, we be beaten. Maybe the cries of agreement and rage came back from the crowd. Maybe they also cried, what should we do, John Ball? Tell us, what should we do? And if so, John Ball had his answer, in the language that the country folk would understand. With the love of the good husbandman, till the field, and uproot and destroy the tares which choke the grain. First, let us kill all the great lords of the kingdom. Second, slay the lawyers, judges and jurors of the country and root out all of those who will harm the Commonwealth in the future. The blue touch paper had been well and truly lit. Imagine the crowd erupting with the euphoria of a vision of the transformation of their lives, surging forward to cheer Ball and slap him on the back. Others called out that the Archbishop of Canterbury should be killed as the traitor he was and that John Ball should be made the Archbishop. Their cries and euphoria fueled the engine that drove all 60,000 of the men camped on Blackheath Hill. Every one of them determined to march on London and make the king turn the world upside down. This was, of course, absolute anathema to the very core of the concept of medieval society in so many ways. The concept of stability and conformity within the Christian church. A world where everyone knew and held their place within society, man of war, man of God, man of work. A concept still well alive and kicking in the 19th century, of course. Who knows that stalwart Anglican hymn, All Things Bright and Beautiful. Sing along. The rich man in his castle, the poor man at his gate, God made them high and lowly, and ordered their estate. Ba-da-da-dum, bum. All things bright and beautiful. Ah, happy, uncomplicated days. Just so long as you happen to be the chap in the castle, rather than the one at the gate, of course. And by the way, if any of you are worried that I don't know that I can't sing, put your mind at rest. I am well aware. But when you reach 50, you stop caring about a number of things, that being one of them. So, how had it come to this? Well, the classic school essay on the Great Revolt of 1381, which is what we're discussing, by the way, was The Black Death Caused the Peasants' Revolt of 1381. Discuss. You can turn your paper over now. 
Nowadays, of course, no one outside Ivory Towers does essays on Richard II, but hey, maybe that's a good thing. So there is, of course, an element of truth in the implication that it was the Black Death that led to the Great Revolt. Back in the plague days, we talked about the social and economic changes wrought by the Black Death, a dearth of cheap, unskilled labour, the pressure from labourers and peasants to reap the benefit of their newfound economic power by freeing themselves from the feudal dues of serfdom imposed by the Norman oppressor, and the reaction of the establishment through the statute of labourers. Now, there were many areas where lords simply blew with the economic winds, and in Kent, for example, ironically, where many of the revolting peasants would come from, many of the old feudal Jews had already been blown away in favour of money rents or payments. But in many other places, the forces of economic and social change had met the forces of oppression and conservatism, ably abetted by that arch-conservative, Edward III. And so it was a pressure cooker, resentment and fury building and building, held in by the tight lid of the social elite. Something had to come along and blow off that lid. And that something was a major political blunder, fed by major military failure. Edward III might have cost his people a fortune to make war, but at least there had been glory and rich pickings for those who took part, and fat ransoms that had helped pay for the king's household. Now there was none of that, just defeat and even bigger bills. The worst effects recently had been mitigated by an arrangement of a truce, but that truce was coming to an end, and every attempt to extend it had failed. So, at the Parliament at Northampton in 1380, Archbishop Sudbury, as Chancellor, on behalf of the Crown, basically told the Commons to go away, sit in a room, and come up with a plan to pay for all the money they needed to defend England from the Scots, the French, the Castilians and their fleets, to keep the Barbicans of Calais, Brest and Cherbourg alive. He needed a massive stonking, buttock-clenching, toe-curling, 160,000 quid. To back him up, the lords, feasting on their quail's wings and heron's tongues, suggested another poll tax of five groats ahead. A groat, before you ask, was about five pence, otherwise known as two days' pay for a farm labourer, so this was a whopping imposition. The last poll tax in 1377 had been universally detested and avoided, and that had been set at one groat, not five. And it had a whole load of exemptions for the poorer members anyway, and had the rich paying a higher amount. The response of the Commons was to try to moderate the pain a bit by coming up with a plan for the church to pay a whole load and reducing therefore the amount to be levied to just three groats. But part of the problem was that the pretty well-off knights of the shire and the burgesses of the towns secretly quite liked the whole idea. The king had been tapping them up for cash for years and here was a way to share the pain and access a whole new reservoir of wealth. So they caved into the idea and voted it through. From January, the King's Commissioners flew out from London like a swarm of locusts, desperate to collect the money as quickly as possible so that campaigning could start. A new treasurer had been appointed, Robert Hales, a man of wide experience. He was the prior of the Knights of St John, known as the Hospitallers, an order every bit as famous as the Templars. 
had seen crusades in Cyprus, had been on the Regency Council, had wide lands and nice houses in Essex and London, and now his job was to make sure that poll tax was paid. Ailes was probably delighted at his new role, and no doubt expected a lucrative bit of backsheesh to boot. In fact, he was to find it a poor career move by and large. What Hales found when he got into things was widespread failure. The early tax receipts were rubbish, way less than expected. And this was despite particularly aggressive collecting efforts. As an example of this, at the last poll tax, people had avoided tax by hook and indeed by crook, and one way was to declare women as unmarried and therefore not eligible. Now the good villagers of Fobbing in Essex claimed that a commissioner had been lifting young girls' skirts to see if they'd had intercourse, which seems at best zealous, and at worst, well, just not good. As far as Hales was concerned, the poor returns had to be the result of corruption or incompetence. In April, for example, the weak and wibbly sheriffs of London had refused to collect the tax for fear of violence, stuff and nonsense, as far as Hales was concerned. In fact, again, he should have listened to his sheriffs. So, on the 30th of May, 1381, John Brampton, a new commissioner sent to sort things out, arrived in the village of Brentwood in Essex. Behind him were two bodily and menacing sergeants. Around his shoulders were the centuries of tradition of obedience and authority. There on the green, or the local hall, he held court, and men from the villages all around came in answer to his summons. In front of him came the figure of one Thomas Baker of the tiny village of Fobbing. Thomas Baker may not be a nationally known name, but he's a hero in Fobbing. If you go to Fobbing today, you will find there a statue erected in Thomas's honour. Thomas was surrounded by the men, not just of Fobbing, but other local villages, Corringham, Stamford, La Hope. Brampton ordered Fobbing to pay up and sharpish. To his astonishment, Thomas said no. They'd already paid quite enough, he said. At his back, the villagers squared their shoulders. Brampton was livid. He ordered his burly sergeants forward to their duty to arrest these troublemakers and let's get on with the rest of the session. Said sergeants took a good look at the mass of villagers. They took a good look at the pitchforks, bows and arrows and various implements they appeared to have brought with them. As far as they were concerned, there was only one way forward they were going, and that was backwards. Brampton at some point also managed to pick up on the ambiance, and in the finest tradition of chivalry, when danger reared its ugly head, he bravely turned his tail and fled. At the time, Thomas Baker and the villagers very probably had no intention of causing a national revolt. They'd just had enough. And as they watched Brampton riding hell for leather out of the village, the terror returned. They were toast. Brampton would surely be back with big, shiny swords and a recipe book for human offal. So their first instinct was to flee to the woods to hide, to the hidden places where outlaws and rebels like Robin Hood had always gone for safety. But a couple of days later, by the 1st of June, they'd taken counsel with themselves and realised that if they were in for a penny, they were in for a groat. And they emerged from the wood and started to send out messages to their neighbouring villages. The following day, a big meeting was held at the village of Bocking, 
and they put together a strategy. By and large, they said, their fight was not with the lords and the gentry that they lived with, it was with the representatives of the state, and particularly the representatives of state justice. And by that, let's be clear, they didn't mean the king himself, au contraire, he was to be their saviour. Their target were those who had corrupted the power of the king. Ah, along the way, they'd also target those lords who had been bad lords and landowners and who had broken the trust between lord and tenant. One of the features of the revolt was that it was intelligently led from the start. Most of the people who had suffered most from the refusal to raise wages were those who had already done well and wanted to do better. So the names we hear of are of the Franklins, the bailiffs, the village leaders. And so there was always an organisation and structure to the revolt. The targets were carefully selected. The people like sheriffs, tax commissioners, justices, predatory landlords that everybody hated. There was a minimum of looting. Each community had a leader, each in close communication with others. And this cellular structure helped the revolt spread fast. And finally, it was driven by intimidation and fear. Men who didn't go along with it were punished and beaten. Pretty soon, other leaders were emerging in addition to Baker, and the revolt had spread to Kent. Names like Jack Straw and Abel Kerr appear. As it spread, the rebels put their agreement into place. They targeted government officials and those landlords they most despised. So in Kent... Justice Robert Belknap was run out of town when he tried to hold a court. The local jurors who had testified against the villagers were not so lucky. Their heads ended up on the end of long poles. In Essex, the sheriff was barricaded in his home, surrounded by a mob until eventually he was overrun, beaten up and all his official documents burned. At the Abbey of Lane, the terrified abbot was forced to declare for the rebels and carried along with the band, effectively a hostage. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As the revolt grew, bands of rebels began to converge and sweep along the roads leading to Canterbury. And by this time they'd acquired the leaders who would be most remembered for the revolt, Watt Tyler and John Ball. 
John Ball, we've heard a bit about a genuine firebrand social revolutionary. Of course, we know naff all about Tyler's background, apart from the fact that he was probably a Tyler, since he wasn't part of the aristocracy, but it seems he came from Essex, might have been involved in the war with France, and had gone into Kent to raise the revolt. He was a bold, aggressive man. He had a clear vision for the revolt and what it should try and achieve. For a while, at least, Tyler and Ball kept the revolt away from being simply a chance to give vent to all the frustrations of life and do a bit of good, honest looting. They gave the whole thing purpose. Throughout, Tyler and Ball seem to have managed to work with and communicate with all the other local leaders and band leaders, tying the different groups together and giving the whole thing coherence. And while the revolt seems to have been driven by Essex and Kent, there's plenty of reference to messages sent to East Anglia, Sussex and Bedford. The purpose that emerged was exemplified by what became the watchword of the revolt. With whom holds you? was the challenge. With King Richard and the true commons would come the reply. The idea was essentially that the king had been betrayed by a bunch of bad advisers close to him. The main candidates were Archbishop Sudbury, who after all was also the Chancellor, and therefore had espoused the hated poll tax in Parliament. Treasurer Hales, because he had implemented it. John of Gaunt, a generally nasty bloke, and a bunch of other names who are identified locally as bad landlords, or associated with the justice system that was keeping them all back. The conspiracy went even further though. Basically, the entire Commons of Parliament had betrayed them. They were not the true commons at all. They were, in fact, not common at all, with their lardy dire accents and their fine clothes and their royal offices. They were just as bad as anyone. As far as the rebels were concerned, as long as they could get rid of all those guys around the king, they could make Richard realise that they were his true friends. And they, the rebels, were the true commons that would represent the country and support him. The scales fallen from his eyes, the king would fall into their arms and be their saviour. He would immediately reverse all those nasty laws and go back to the golden days of Edward the Confessor and everyone would live happily ever after. And so the revolt swelled and swept on deep into Kent. The rebels arrived at Rochester Castle, which should have been simply beyond them. After all, they had no siege train. But all the guards simply abandoned their posts and the rebels were inside before you could say Jack Robinson. They opened the jails and captured the keeper, Sir John Newton. Now Newton could be useful. He was an aristocrat who could be used to communicate with other aristocrats and give the revolt legitimacy. So they sat him down and had a little chat. Now, John, they said, you must come with us to be our leader and captain and do whatever we ask of you. Darlings, lovely offer, thank you so much, said Sir John. But look, I'm a little busy at the moment and have something of a gammy leg, so would you mind awfully if I took a rain check? The rebels said, Sir John, if you do not, you are a dead man. So the tradition of an offer you can't refuse was alive and well and living in south-east England well before the godfather popped up. At the same time, the rebels took Newton's children as hostage to his good behaviour. Then it was on to Canterbury, where hopefully they'd find one of the arch-villains, Archbishop and Chancellor, Sudbury. Thousands of rebels poured into the town just as mass was being heard in the cathedral, and suddenly the whole town was ablaze. 
Rebels swarmed over the castle and once again it fell without a hint of resistance. The guards abandoned the posts, the jails were opened. At the cathedral, the rebels were all over the archbishop's house, ransacking and looting it. According to Foissard, they swore, The Chancellor of England got his furniture on the cheap. Soon he will have to render us account of the revenue of England and the huge sums he has levied since the king's coronation. Tyler got the cathedral chapter together and told the terrified monks they should elect another Archbishop of Canterbury on account of the fact that the current one sucked. He got the leaders of the town together and told them that they were infested with traitors but luckily Tyler was here to help them clear them out. Hand over your traitors and we'll sort it. The whole place erupted as the local men gleefully joined in the fun. Three names emerged and the men were dragged from their houses and summarily executed. The properties of the most despised landlords were ransacked and a manhunt started. The property of William Medmanham, Richard de Hoo, Thomas Garmwenton and Thomas Fig were all plundered, but the men themselves were fortunately nowhere to be found. Other local dignitaries like John Tebe and their agents like John Teese, a manorial official, were found and murdered. We have now got to June the 11th and the whole shebang has been going on for close to two weeks. So, I hear you ask, where is the king and his councillors? Presumably there's a big army of hard-faced blokes and indignant landlords cased in shiny metal heading towards the rebels right now as we speak. Well, no, as it happens. Because look, here's the thing. John of Gaunt was away up north in Scotland negotiating. And guess who was with him? The army, that's who. OK, I hear you say, but there are lots of other royal uncles, aren't there? What about Edmund of Langley, Earl of Cambridge? Nope, he's away down in Plymouth with an army bound for Portugal, waiting for the wind to change. OK then, Thomas of Woodstock, soon to be Duke of Gloucester. Nope, he's away in France with an army. So the rebels had picked a really, really neat time. Basically, the king and the government were as exposed as they could be, though it's fair to point out that since this thing had never happened before, they could hardly expect to have been planning for it. Nope, the young king, just a puny 14, was up the Thames at Windsor, 27 miles away as the crow flies, but a lot further as the river Thames meanders. But by the 11th of June, messages had been reaching Watt Tyler and his other leaders from two sources. Firstly, from friends in London, eager to join in the fun, inviting them to come and raise the flag of revolt there. Secondly, and most gratifyingly, messengers from the king. Watt must have been beside himself with excitement. Here's me, little old Watt, hobnobbing with the king's messengers, eh? Way to go, Watt. The king and his council demanded to know why the commons were behaving this way, and could they please stop immediately and go and sit at the castle gate as usual, please? The answer would have horrified them. You're all right, king, said Watt and John. We've risen up to save you and the kingdom from traitors, and we'll keep going till the job's done, if you don't mind. No doubt the king's council debated long and hard, but in the end they probably didn't have a lot of choice. And in the end, in the words of Winnie, George Orr has got to be better than War War, especially if your closest army is 200 miles away at the time. So they invited Tyler to talk at Blackheath, just outside London. 
Tyler was over the moon. Immediately he upped sticks, and off they hopped to Blackheath like a swarm of locusts, eating and burning everything in their way. And so we arrive at where we started, John Ball preaching and rabble-rousing over the campfires at Blackheath as they waited for their big day with the king. While they were doing that, the king and his council hopped onto a barge with lots of rich tapestries and soft cushions, no doubt, and arrived the night of the 11th at the Tower of London with what remained of his council. Treasurer Hales was there, of course, more than a bit worried, aware that he was the main target of the rebels' fury. Richard Fitzalan, 4th Earl of Arundel, 35 years old and part of the Continual Council. 44-year-old Thomas Beecham, the 12th Earl of Warwick, and finally, the 53-year-old William Montague, Earl of Salisbury. Both Warwick and Salisbury had been involved in Edward's wars. Salisbury, in particular, is the same Salisbury that had commanded such a large role at Poitiers. We'll hear more of Arundel and Warwick in the reign of Richard. But we won't hear much more about Salisbury, who dies in 1397. And maybe this is because he stays loyal to Richard, but he also has a difficult time of it in his home life. Partly because of a legal dispute, but also because, at a tournament at Windsor in 1382, he rode in a friendly joust against his only son and heir, and killed him by mistake. I imagine that would take a lot out of you. In addition to these leading magnates were two other groups. There were Richard's contemporaries, the younger men and boys of his household. Significant among these are Henry Bolingbroke, and then Richard de Vere, a 19-year-old and Richard's closest friend. Sadly for Richard, his great confidant and mentor Simon Burley was not with him. But he was joined now by the leaders of London. I'll mention just two of these, since remembering names is a bit of a challenge of this podcast. Firstly, Nicholas Brembera, a major player in the politics of London, an ex-mayor of London, a rich and influential merchant. And then William Walworth, the current mayor. We'll hear more of Walworth and Brembera next week. On the 12th of June, a couple of things happened. First of all, a boat approached the tower from the rebels to check the details of the promised meeting. In the boat was a very agitated Sir John Newton, keeper of Rochester Castle. Now poor old Newton was in something of a state, eager to explain to Richard that he wasn't really on the side of the rebels, but if he didn't do the job, they'd promise to kill his children. Before long, Newton reappeared at the rebels' camp. Richard wouldn't meet with them today, but he would meet them tomorrow, on the 13th of June, the Feast of Corpus Christi. What Tyler and John Ball were delighted. The audience with the king was confirmed. Did give them a problem, or opportunity, a day off for thousands of expectant rebels. So they decided to spend their extra day on a nice little rampage along the south bank of the Thames. So they set off for Southwark and Lambeth. Southwark, you might remember, is the town that had sprung up on the southern end of the one crossing across the Thames London Bridge. If you go to the website, you'll find a map of London in 1300. The key features of Southwark was the gate and drawbridge on the bridge, one of the keys to London's defence. Now, Walworth, the mayor, had made sure it was held firm. However, the target for the rebels at the moment in Southwark was the Marshal of London, not the bridge. 
The Marshal was not a popular chap. He was part of the establishment, his already infamous prison, the Marshalsea, a symbol of oppression. The Marshal was not a stupid man, though, and by the time the mob had arrived, he had already legged it over the bridge into the city. So when the prison was opened and the prisoners released, he was nowhere to be seen. Meanwhile, the good folk of Southwark received the Kent and Essex commons with open arms. Not only that, but they passed the word that if they did get across the bridge, the commons of London inside would be with them too. The other objective, then, was Lambeth. Lambeth now, of course, is just one of those many districts of London south of the Thames, but at this time it was a small village some distance away from London town opposite Westminster. Its significance was the presence of the Archbishop's Palace, which in due course was totaled by the rebels, taking care to destroy all his legal records as well as smashing the place up generally, a feature of the revolt, the destruction of the hated written legal documents that held their lives in thrall. They took the opportunity to drink all his wine to boot and then returned to Blackheath. Archbishop Sudbury had heard they were on their way and had duly lifted his robes, taken to his heels and skipped across the river. So back in the tower, the young king received a visit from the panicked 65-year-old archbishop. In a right old pother, Sudbury resigned as chancellor and handed over the great seal. It was not enough to save him. So the morning of the 13th of June dawned. The rebels were in a fever of excitement. The king was coming to talk to them. Together they would right all the wrongs. The traitors would be killed. The true commons rewarded. John Ball dreamt that all the bishops, abbots and archbishops would be swept away. What Tyler probably had darker ambitions. When Richard stepped off his barge, he would be quietly taken captive and become a puppet for the new true power in the land. What Tyler and the true commons. In the morning, as they stood on the bank, they would probably have been able to see the royal barge slipping out from the tower and rowing down the Thames towards them. Tyler, Ball and Straw stood waiting with Newton at their side, holding a petition. On the barge, as it approached, sat Richard, Hales, Sudbury and his other advisers, and the shouts of greeting from the mass of the rebel army rose into the morning air. Tyler had organised them well. They stood in ordered battalions, just like a regular army. Now Richard was all for going ashore and getting the conversation started, but those around him were not so sure. Salisbury, the most experienced warrior, made it clear to Richard that on no account should he go ashore. Unfortunately for Richard, given Tyler's plans, he agreed. So they sent a message from the boat, asking for the rebels' demands to be brought to them and a petition duly arrived. For the first time, Richard would have truly known what he was dealing with, and it was shocking. The petition demanded the immediate execution of a group of traitors, including Hales, Sudbury and John of Gaunt, but also a bunch of others. Sudbury and Hales were standing by the king, wondering if they were about to be thrown to the wolves. To what Taylor's horror, shame and fury? The royal barge didn't stand into shore. To his growing disbelief it turned and began to move off. The only message was that the rebels should come to Windsor on the following Monday to talk more, and Tyler's moment of triumph had turned to dust. Foissard described what happened next. 
When those people saw that they would obtain nothing more, they were aflame with fury. They went back to the hill where the main body was and reported what had been said to them and that the king had gone back to the tower. The whole mass of them started shouting together, To London! To London! The rebels burned and swept down the hill from Blackheath to Southwark, destroying and burning Southwark as they went. The only thing that stood between them and London was the drawbridge and the gate. And so, gentle listeners, that seems as good a place to leave it as any. With all of you on tenterhooks, desperate to know what happens next. You'll have to wait until next week to see if the rebels get over that bridge and whether they win back their rights and freedoms. As ever, thanks to everyone for listening and especially thanks to donators Cathy, Oak, Burnt, John and Matthew. There has been a little rash of comments on the History of England website, which I've really enjoyed this week. And thank you, of course, for all your comments on iTunes and the Facebook group too. So, best of luck, everyone, and have a great week.